My name's Clemency Burton-Hill. I'm a broadcaster on BBC Radio 3 and 4 and a writer. And I'm delighted to be your host for this platform event with the wonderful Anne-Marie Duff. She is, of course, one of our greatest actresses. I'm sure she'll be familiar to all of you. Are you pulling a funny face? No, no, no. Of course no. not. Um, she has brought so many different types of characters to life over the years, from Fiona and Shameless to Queen Elizabeth I, from John Lennon's mum to a radicalised factory worker in Suffragette, from St Joan to the tour de force that is her latest role in common here on this very stage. And before we kick off, who's seen the play? Lots of you. That is wonderful news, because we thought we might have to try and explain all of it to you, which would be quite something. Who hasn't seen the play? We'll do our very best for you guys, so uh, thank you. Um, Anne-Marie, maybe we can start with setting the play up. It's brand new. It's by the young Olivier Award-nominated and Writers Guild Award-winning playwright DC Moore, and it's a very dark, disturbing, but brilliant and almost carnivalesque journey back to the very earliest years of the 19th century, looking at the dawn of industrial Britain, the tension between private and public during the period of so-called enclosure laws. Could mm. you give us a sense of where the play has come from and what it's all about? Um, it's, a play, it's about so many things, this play, that it's difficult to give you a sort of so soundbite. But it is about the agricultural community. And it's an English story. That's really important to say that, because this is very site-specific. Um, the act of enclosure was sort of very much to do with the English countryside, because we all know about highland clearances, and we know a lot about what happened in Ireland, and, but we don't tend to know so much about that world, although I think it was mentioned in Poldark the other night. It was a bit like, <laughs> so now everyone knows. Now he's all over the place. <laughs> um, but yes, so um, <clears throat> this story... We have this Compass Point character who has been exiled from a parish and returns. Uh, she's exiled to London and um, basically she sort of whores her way to the top. She becomes very wealthy and very ruthless and returns back to her parish to her first love for two reasons, mostly because she wants the woman that she's loved her whole life. And secondly, because she has heard that the temperature's rising in terms of enclosure taking place in that district. And enclosure was this act which, there used to be an extraordinary system of farming in this country where you would the sort of land, it was very communal, you know, and sort of socialist scenario where the whole parish would have uh, an area of land which they would all farm with various agreements together and they'd have stock on that land and they would grow crops on that land and it kind of worked together obviously there would have been conflict within that and they kind of policed it themselves using old custom and old magic and all of the things that you know that we don't because it's pre-police force if you like so you had this whole system and then suddenly government came along and said, well, that's not really profitable for us, so we need to define areas and have landowners and employees. And also, at this period of time, uh, the Industrial Revolution is really kicking off, so we need lots of poor working-class people in the cities to run industry. So what happens is that there is a disempowering of, uh, of 
the lower classes, they end up moving to cities and there are fewer jobs in agriculture and it all becomes very uh, mechanised. So Mary comes along having been in London for 20 years and then she comes back and she wants to get Laura and take her out of this world because she's frightened of what's going to happen. But she knows that the only way to do that, because Laura is so wedded to where she lives and wedded to this way of life, and she's very superstitious and believes in old custom, that she thinks, well, I'll have to halt enclosure. If I make her believe that the parish is safe, she'll come away with me. So that's kind of the plot in a nutshell. Within that, there's loads of bonkers magic and a lot of swearing, which offends a lot of people. <laughs> And a few um, entrails along the quite way. Quite a lot of blood and guts, and a lot of how's your father? <laughs> so that's the play. That I think. is common in a nutshell. On paper, the idea of a play that centres around enclosure laws sounds a bit dry, but DC Moore has approached this subject with such wit and such adventure. It's hugely ambitious in scope, and central to that is what he's done with language. Yeah which is really extraordinary. Can you talk a bit about the language of the play? It, it's very audacious what he's done. I don't know how to describe it. Simon Stevens came the other night and he was so completely blown away by it. He just sat in the bar and he said to me, I just, this play is full of lines that I wish I'd written mm. because he's just created a language. It's full of compounds, you know. Can so you give us some examples? Um, so I would say, when I'm describing myself, I'm sin-drowned, or hollow-empty, or moral-vacant. And those are, they're so juicy, aren't they? And so fat and delicious, and instantly, as lyrical as it is, it's so visceral and soily, you know? And so, as soon as I started reading it and saw that, I just, it's so seductive, and, and people don't do that. You know, we all try and do film speak, and we are so, especially at the moment, there's a real trend towards supernaturalism, even within Shakespearean productions. We try and make them very lab-like, or we, we make them as sort of distilled as possible, and they're not florid, don't be florid, don't be... But, and then Dave has written this play that's so balls-out theatrical mm. that it should have Jacobean-y language, you know, and, and that's theatre, you know. So we say, this is the medium in which we exist. And I think... Um, that that's why it's, and it takes a long time, it's like jazz. It doesn't come to you, you go to it, you know, it, you have to sit and you have to listen, sh like Shakespeare. And after a while then, it hits you on a soul level and you go, yeah, 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 I get it now. I get this, this is sexy, this is good. And the audience has to go through a, a fairly similar process too. It takes a while for your ear to attune to it, as it would in any play, as it would in any Shakespeare or any classical drama, but I feel like we're so used to that. And if you're not necessarily expecting it from a brand new play yeah. written by a 30-something... And in period costume. In period costume. Like, and especially delivered from the outset by this badass female, which we're very unused to. And we'll get to that in a moment. But in terms of learning it, in terms of... I'm fascinated by that idea that you go to it. It's a huge part for you. It's a real, as I say, tour de force. How do you actually approach getting your mouth around it, getting your muscles around it? Because it's like learning a new language in some ways. It was very difficult to learn, actually. It was. Um, but, you know, that's the quest for the kingdom, you know, because that's part of the character as well, is this di dialogue that she has with the audience. And 
and it belongs to the world of the play and all of those things. So all, all, what it does is, as much as a, a challenge as it is, it, it feeds you as a storyteller and helps you find the person. It's like a dialect or something, you know, you go, well, actually, it makes me understand their music, you know, so it's uh, really useful, as hard as it is. And it, as an audience member, I really relish that. You have a sense of a writer really in love with language and what yeah. it can do and newly minted yeah. phrases, but from that newly minting comes a new world, which is what I found really, really exciting about it. Yeah. Let's talk about Mary. She's right at the heart of this piece. As you say, she is the compass point, serially death-defying, <laughs> bit of a rogue, bit Machiavellian. You, as a wonderful actress, presumably get offered all sorts of cracking parts. This is definitely a real cracker, but what drew you specifically to Mary? I think um, that she was so morally dubious. Um, that's always interesting. I, I always, I'm always drawn to characters who have a great commitment to something. I think as a species, we're really drawn to commitment. Even people are obsessed with reading about serial killers because there's a sort of commitment to something. And we try to understand that. And whether it's to cracking your heart open and loving somebody with all your marrow, or whether it's becoming Richard III and saying, you know, I think we're just so, we're so drawn to commitment. And I, all the characters I've ever played actually have been hugely committed people, whether it's to making sure there's food on the table for the children or, you know, because we thrive, don't we? And so if I find that inside a person, I say, how is it that they like, that how do they choose to thrive? Then that's always a good starting point for me. Because I know then that there'll be this sort of um, heartbeat. Um, and also she was funny and, and she's like nobody I'd ever played before. I'd never really played anyone like a Machiavelli before at all. Um, and yeah, and, and the fact she was a woman, um, and she's gay, and it's not a thing. It's not like, oh, this is a gay play. It's just a woman in love, and that's mm. really important that we tell those stories on the Olivier stage. It, and also, it's a political play. It's about disenfranchised people and what it makes them do, make, how it makes them behave. And she says that to the audience. She goes, here you go. This is what... And uh, while we were doing this play, I'm standing on stage. London Bridge happened five minutes up the road. Or Finsbury Park happened when I went to bed the next night, you know. So it's so much of what is happening in the world at the moment feels so vital to what was happening in the play. So it all felt very like an own brainer. I'm stop talking now. To say nothing of an election in which yeah. a whole load of very disenfranchised people, people made their voice high. You know, that's Brexit. So um, so that it, it, it all felt very pertinent. At one point, Mary speaks of her, I have to be careful here, runt small country. That country's all right. Runt small country <laughs> being at the edge of a vast sunless abyss. Now, personally speaking, I heard that very hard to hear without thinking about Brexit, and I will try not to make my political views known. Were you seeking as a company and as an actor, as a group of actors, to foreground those contemporary relevant experiences? Of course we were. Definitely the cast, definitely. And Dave, absolutely. Um, you couldn't not really. Uh, it's curious, isn't it? Because you know also lots of people who 
come see the show probably would have voted in a different direction to me. Um, but you have to understand them. Mm. And, and, and that's what the play tries to do. You know, most of the time racism was born out of fear. The play t talks about racism. I'd probably say the majority of the time racism was born out of fear of the different, of what it, how it will affect us and what will it take away from us, your difference. What will your difference take away from me? And so, um, you know, we have to have that conversation, don't we? And we have to do it as creatively as we can and as unpreacherly as we can. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. This, this is such a cathedral of a space. Mm. It doesn't have to be Shakespearean comedy. It can be a really political platform. And it feels really important that in a national theatre where the breadth of what is on offer runs the gamut from canonical classics and ancient Greek tragedies to brand new, newly minted language and newly minted works, that that stuff is addressed on the Olivier stage. I feel like we run the risk sometimes of putting those plays in smaller spaces. Yeah, we do. And but I we could have put this in the Dorfman, no problem. Yeah. It would have been a really different production. Yeah. It would have been less audacious. We'd have been safer. Yeah. We'd have had a safer audience because each of these theatres in this building has a very different audience, mm. really clearly. You know the Dorfman crowd, you know the Littleton crowd, and you really know the Olivier crowd. And it's very curious that they don't, t there's no fluidity. There's not as much fluidity as you'd think there would be. Mm. So it's a m in lots of ways, it is a more hostile audience towards a political play. I'm sure everyone in the audience here today, though, is not in that kind of category. And I'm sure you go to all three of the wonderful national houses. But I, it really did strike me that it was particularly bold to be doing this play on this stage. That said, <coughs> it is the most fabulous production. Beautiful to look at. Visceral. You mentioned the blood and the guts. There's a lot of that. Also, the band is on stage. Yeah live musicians as part of it <coughs> it just feels like something i'd never seen before or at least hadn't seen in a long time it's got a kind of energy to it a rawness to it that's rare i haven't seen on a london stage for a long time Ever. talk to me about the about the process about the direction about how you put it all together it was a huge play at the beginning of rehearsals and we did have to edit quite a lot of it. Unfortunately, we just did. Um, <coughs> there were lots and lots and lots, there were many more ideas that had to go because there's only so much you can wrap your brain around. So that, uh, that was a lot, lot of work and there was a lot of just understanding it all and making sure we were really clear and specific with it. Um, and forming our company was very important because it was a real company piece. Um, and uh, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was a big one. It was a big one to do, because it's a big unwieldy piece, or because of the specific nature of challenges that we've already touched upon. Like Probably all of the above, actually. But yeah, because it's such a broad panorama, and and we have to really bring it. You know, you've got to really bring it. It's like one of those productions, and this space is it's empty, so we have to be very committed to the people right up the back, you know, um, yeah. You talked earlier with me backstage about plays or characters that give so much back 
and plays that drain you. And this has obviously been quite a draining play production because you are at the centre of it all. You have to energise everyone else really around that. How do you, as an actor, how do you, how do you approach a challenge specifically like that? It's really interesting because it commands a great deal of confidence and most of the time you have to fake it because you're shitting yourself, you know. And I know I was right up until we opened and uh, still a wee bit, but um, you do it. It's very, each play presents different challenges and a play like this is, everyone looks to the lead. It's inevitable, everybody always looks to a leading actor whenever you're working on a play. And you really have a job to set a tone in the rehearsal room. And if your character is a manipulator, is a controlling individual, then it's really important that you say to the room, you know what, I'll be up for this. I, I, I'm capable. Don't worry, you'll be grand. You're safe in my hands. And that's really... It's a lot on you. It's a lot on you. But, you know, you're lucky to have the job and you get to flux, flux, flex all your acting muscles. So, get on with it. You know, it's really... But, um, so that's the... I suppose that was one of the biggest challenges for me. And, and some days I really did just want to be playing a vulnerable character who is more, is more of a, a receptor, but that's not who she is. And so she's, um, she's, a, she's punchy, you know, so I had to, I suppose that, that's, that, that's the energy. That's why it's so, so tiring, I guess. Mm. And as I was saying earlier on, we, we, uh, we were talking about Joan and I was saying, weirdly, I used to feel very buoyed by Joan when I played her, even though, she was such a firecracker, but, and also got burnt alive. Um, but there was something so much to do with her sense of receiving her energy from him upstairs. So she was always just a channel. So she felt so much, there was always energy coming back. Whereas Mary is so godless and cynical and nihilistic that it's just like vomiting, you know, all the time. And so, <laughs> God, I'm really selling it. It's just, <laughs> but I mean, it's just like, it's like that, that emotional sort of, that you just, so you do feel a bit spent. Which is not to say that I don't enjoy it. It is great fun, but it's just different, that's all. She's a conductor. She's orchestrating this whole thing. Yeah. When you're talking about those manipulative tendencies, how she controls everything, I was thinking, you know, it immediately brings to mind a character like Iago, for example. Very few other female roles that are at the centre of drama as we know it. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is that she has a relationship with the audience. You make us complicit from the very outset. Mm. You're not just living inside the play. What was that like? It's great because the female characters never get to do that in yeah. Johnson or in, not even really in Moliere. You, you know, get you big, whacking, great soliloquies. You don't get that. And you certainly don't in Shakespeare, you know. In the comedies you do when they're pretending to be boys. But um, you don't really get that opportunity. And we do that from the second we start the play. I remember when we were at the very beginning of rehearsals, Kush, Jumbo, just sitting and talking about the play and she just was like you have to understand this never happens this never happens 
and I remember her being extremely passionate about it. And it's true, you know, it's so important that both genders are all seasons. Because the audience isn't just one kind of person, you know, so it's, it's really important because I'm as affected by Kevin Spacey in House of Cards as I am by Mary in Common. I love both those characters. It's just great. So, you know, and, and so for it to be, it's not a female writer. Or indeed director. Or director, you know, so we're not getting all that bollocks of like, oh, so it's a it's female production, it's a woman's production. It's not. It's so it's a play about a Your person. entire production uh, team, in fact, is male in terms of the main... Well, apart from Paulie, who did the lighting. Oh, yeah, yeah. excuse me. Who's a, who's got a show on every theatre at the moment. She's Amazing. very brilliant. But that is so important, isn't it? And we, we, there's a wonderful line in the play about the sort of double standards of like what we would call a man behaving like Mary and what we would call a Mary behaving like a Mary. Mm. And I feel like that's the same in terms of those characters. No one really blinks an eye at an Iago character or a House of Cards character. But when it's a woman, there's a, a real sense of this isn't right, this shouldn't be happening. Yeah, How dare like a woman talk like this and to us in yeah. a respectable place like the Olivier Theatre? What is going in life, on? You know, you can't... And that's partly our fault too, you know, because we worry about being nice. Yeah. Do you but worry about being nice? Of course, I think it is a it's con it's conditioning, isn't it, too? You know, we worry about that. But, um, uh, yeah, I think, hopefully, it feels like the platelets are shifting in some parts of the world, not everywhere, not everywhere, in fact, at all. Is but it a liberation know. to play someone who doesn't care what people think of her? Yeah, that's, that is funny, because I do, as a person. It was like, whoop, like me. <laughs> um, but, um, Any other women around the room feel like that, ever? <laughs> Probably quite a few I men like as well. I feel like you're a good company, sister. Yeah, um, but, um, yeah so it's, quite, it's always good fun to be something you're not, you know, because it makes you think about what would it be like if I were. So do you learn from her? I think I learn from every story I've ever read, played, watched. That's the point of story, isn't it? Because it is medicine for our souls, you know. I have a seven-year-old. How does he learn? Through narrative. I tell him such and such and such and such, and you didn't give a monkeys, but if I tell him, imagine this, straight away, that's how we learn. And it doesn't stop till the day we die. So, yeah, of course I learn, and, and I'm very grateful for it. Some of the stories that are told amongst this rural community are historic. They are ritualistic. They are, as you mentioned, white magic is a really important part of the way they organise and make sense yeah. of their lives. Yeah. And there is that supernatural element to this play. Mary, bit of a fake psychic, then actually does realise she can actually see stuff that's going to happen. Yeah. Talk us through the supernatural elements of the play. So it's almost like there's two different strands. There's supernatural, real supernatural, and also then custom and superstition. And custom and superstition are hugely important, aren't they? Especially if you don't have a national health service or a welfare state or any of these things. Because how do you protect yourself? How do you, you know, that's how people, it's what people lent on massively. Because, you know, you have to stay well, you have to stay alive, you have to, and so you find the means of doing that, don't you? I'm just say for the people who haven't seen the play that we meet the community at a time, as you can see on the Olivier stage, of blight, of yeah, a failed harvest. harvest. It was a very famous a failed desperation harvest. desperation that surrounds 
that community because people of the could die. Artists. You know, we look at the rest of the world where it happens, and we can. Yeah. Um, so I think it's easy to make sense of custom in that way, isn't it? Because you just think, well, we have to rationalise. We have to feel as if we have some control over our destiny. And if it means wearing a feather in my hat or a piece of the ground in my hat all day long, I'll bloody do it. Because we all do that, you know, we all have wee things that we do, don't we? Um, because it's a form of prayer, I guess. And um, then there is magic in the play, good old fashioned, <laughs> crazy magic. We have talking animals, we have everything in the play, you know, so, um, and, and it, it feels like there's a sense of immortality to Mary and who is she? Is she a real person or is she someone who just lives through centuries, you know? So I'm so scared because there are people who haven't seen the play, so I don't really want to give away any of it. But um, What's wonderful though is how you keep in suspension all of those different Marys. Because I personally found some of the scenes with Kush Jumbo, Mary and Laura, just utterly heartbreaking, touching, as believable as if... I was going through a breakup myself or going through a love affair or watching it in a super natural play. It doesn't feel out of place in that respect at all. And that's what's really remarkable. It's such a, let's say it's such an ambitious play. It's working on so many different levels and your performances are also working on all of those different levels too. Was that something that you were consciously thinking about in those scenes which become very domestic and very vulnerable. I mean, there's an immense vulnerability about Mary in her relationship with Laura that's brought out so beautifully by you. Well, that's, I suppose you wouldn't have the payoff of, so y you have to have, check me out. I'm so cocksure and I'm in control. And then you see actually she's just as, as many nerve endings as the rest of us. So she's just as vulnerable as we are. And then she has her heart broken and then this creature is allowed, she's, it sort of feeds this creature who says, look at me, I'm in control. And that's the great tragedy, is that that cynicism wins. Mm. And, but you, you need to have the vulnerability in order to feed that monster because that, then you have the tragedy. It's like com comedy doesn't work unless there is a tipping point at which things could become tragic. Like in Much To Do About Nothing with Hero and you know, and the marriage not happening. And mm -hmm. you need to have that moment at which everything could go desperately wrong to come back from. It's, it's really interesting. You need those huge sort of elastic bands, don't you? And, and so that nobody would care. If it was just a play about somebody it was very clever and fucked people over. Yeah, it'd be funny for a bit, but you really wouldn't come away with anything, would you? You know, the, uh, on a on a more profound level. So, I guess we 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 have to have that, don't we? And as you say, wonderful to normalise a gay relationship or a gay character without it being a thing. Like it's not yeah. a gay play. No, it's just two people who happen to, to be in love with, be in each, love with other. each other or have been in love with each other. Yeah. Have you ever played a gay character before? Uh, not one that's sort of like described as being gay or there being scenes where that would be evident. But I've played characters that I thought might be, or might be bisexual. I think sexual, there's a lot of fluidity in sexuality. Mm. I think it's really interesting the way young people are now about sexuality. I find that absolutely extraordinary now. I think, wow, this is very cool. People are... Say, I don't want to be boxed in. I don't know if I'm that or if I'm that. I just like to be in the room. That's great. Mm. But then I'm an actor, I would say that.
fluidity is in your very nature, you might say. <laughs> how, how important, <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. <laughs> yeah. How important, though, is it to reflect that again on a stage like this? And there's gender-blind casting, there's colour-blind casting, yeah. there's a variety of sexual preferences that are just being put out there as part of what it is to be human rather than something that needs to be kind of examined as a weird thing that we can kind of go, ooh, look at that. Yeah. Like, I loved the fact that it was just presented as it was. And again, that it's here on the Olivier stage yeah. and not being sort of pushed aside into a more, yeah. a smaller box. What, do you think that was part of what DC Moore was thinking about when he wrote those characters, when he wrote that? I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was, you know. And I think Rufus is to be commended. It's really brave to put on a play like this in this, in this room. It's really brave and it's a massive gamble. And quite often when you take big gambles, general consensus leaves the building. And so it's really important that in subsidised theatre we go there. Because mm -hmm. this isn't a commercial space, we don't have to be so safe. But, you know, obviously we have to sell tickets, etc. But it's really important that we take those massive leaps of creative faith or jump into the flames, you know, we, we kind of need to. It's so what is this space if it's not for that, I guess? Um, and like we say, we don't want it to be preachy, but it's, 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 it has to reflect the world in which we live. And the world in which we live is full of all kinds of shit. And it needs to be seen on these stages. Yeah, why not? Absolutely. Uh, thinking about how you got to this very stage, not literally, but sort of over the years, looking back, you mentioned having been shaped by every story that you'd heard, every book you'd read. When did you know that this was something that you wanted to do? How did you get here? I didn't, it wasn't something I wanted to do when I was a kid. I was desperately shy. I know it seems hard to live. <laughs> I was a very shy child. Um, and I was a complete bookworm, and my son is now actually, which is very interesting. And so I suppose I was always obsessed with story, and he had a profound effect on me. And I, um, I then went to like a drama club when I was about 11, and dabbled a wee bit, and was that just a local drama club? Yeah, it was just a local thing. I wanted to be a writer when I was very small, as a result of reading books. And this is the truth. Roald Dahl came to my junior school on World Book Day or whatever, when I was very small, at really, really rough school in Greater London. I know, what a blessing is that. And I remember sitting and listening to him read some of James and Giant Peach and him talking about it. And I was completely, and um, then, then I thought I wanted to be a writer. I was probably about seven or eight. And um, then, tick tock, tick tock, I went to youth theatre when I was about 11 or 12. And then I just, it was just such a sort of a organic sidestep and I really liked it. And then I became very nerdy about it and I read lots of plays. I read lots of, through my teens I would read Chekhov and Gorky. I became very, can you imagine me growing up on a council estate in West London? I had no friends. <laughs> and um, I 
Like Were you going to see the plays as well? Or were you no, just I, we didn't have that money. And I would read a lot about history. I became very interested in the Royal Court, what was happening in the 50s and 60s. And also about what happened. And I became very interested in Eleanor Aduza and these sort of mythical actresses of the past. And um, uh, yeah, so it was a kind of, the whole thing became a huge escapism. And at the same time, I was reading a lot of Thomas Hardy and D.H. Lawrence and all of these writers who'd come from very working class backgrounds and had kind of become more of themselves through art and culture. And I thought that, that smelt so uh, true. And it was a different time when I was a teenager. There wasn't the obsession with celebrity culture that there is and has been for the last 20 years. And um, there wasn't also this weird culture of, it's a very strange duplicity, isn't there? Where you have this weird culture of entitlement, but at the same time of people feeling trapped within certain classes or certain worlds. So the notion, I think, for a lot of working class kids now that they might escape through something that isn't reality TV or something that has to do with the narcissistic sort of creation. You know, I think that you might have to graft something and then it will present you with all kinds of possibilities. It feels so impossible and far away for a lot of young working class people now, which is a great tragedy. So I still had that feeling and my parents were from Ireland and so storytelling was part of my life. Standing up and singing a song in front of people, drunken people, but people, <laughs> was part of my life. So there was lots of, I suppose there were lots of factors that made me feel that it was fine to do that for a living. It was very hard to get into drama school, very hard. I had to work really hard at it. And, um, but I thought that was the only way in. And that was kind of how it happened and I've been in, insanely blessed and was straight away after I left college. All I wanted to do was theatre. I didn't want to be a movie star. I wanted to go, I wanted to do that. And so um, that was what I did. And I worked with Mike Alfreds straight away after drama school and then continued and then came here and I've had the most amazing time. I'm so unbelievably lucky and aware of that luck. But yeah, so... Um, Some people might think talent has something to no, do with it. There's a lot of talented people in the world. I have many friends who never work, mm. who can spend two years waiting for some bloody donation. Mm. You know, so I'm aware of that good fortune and I don't take it for granted. You mentioned that you're worried about young people today not having that opportunity, not having that possibility presented to them. Obviously, the faults are myriad political, educational, cultural, social, all of it. What can theatre do about it? Because there's been a lot of soul searching in the arts recently in the last few years, rightly so. This theatre's done an awful lot to commit to the fact that audiences have to better reflect the reality of British life, and so do the plays that we put on. We've already talked about that. It's the same in music and yeah. all sorts of dance, uh, art forms. Um, but what do you think we need to be doing? Because do you see coming through the door 
the Amory Duffs of today? Well, they are there, you know. We had a girl the other night who'd got a night train from Glasgow to come and see the play because she wanted to see a State of the Nation play. How amazing is that? But we, um, I think it's all about arts education and um, we can do what we do and encourage that, encourage young people to come and see plays, make it fucking affordable. You know, it breaks my heart when I look at the prices. I could, I could, but I won't, but I could mention a play that has moved from subsidised theatre into the West End and it's now nearly £200 to buy a ticket. How is that not excluding people? Um, but yeah, I, 15 know. quid travel season yeah, for years what, under Nick know, it's, so pounds. it's so important. It's not affordable for everyone, but it's more affordable. We have it. It's we not have impossible. It is, there. it is there. Proms at the moment, six quid. The proms is extraordinary. The greatest you know. But the proms historically, the that's been its job, and that's yeah. what's so beautiful that it's never changed that position. But I think arts education is the most vital thing because it realises people. The arts realise people. Mm. They make people more of themselves. And even if it just gives you a voice in a room, it doesn't mean you're going to grow up to be a, 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 you know, a concert pianist or a prima ballerina or any of those things, but it gives you a sense of self that nothing else does. Because there is a different kind of judgment in the creative world. It's not maths. You don't go, well, that's wrong. You know, you say, well, that's interesting. Why did you paint his face purple? Where did that come from? Mm. What about you made you do that? You know, it's really... It, and if you do a drama workshop with teenagers, they come out of it afterwards in such a different place. Mm. Because it, 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 it encourages you to make mistakes, to not be cynical. It's a great thing that... Catelyn Moran said about cynicism and I loved it so much because it's very much to do with like the teenage state and she says she talks about the danger of being cynical she says cynicism is like an armor it stops you from growing and it means you can't dance and I just think that's amazing isn't it and that's what it it forces you to be uncynical anything creative and it stops you from watching yourself and all of those things and I think developmentally it's hugely important isn't it for us as a species and I think that's so vital with arts education because it forces you to imagine and have vision and see yourself somewhere else and see yourself someone else the empathy see yourself someone it's else empathy, empathy is yeah which is you know god knows we're in short supply of empathy right now in the world I feel yeah. um I could happily talk to you all afternoon but uh we will move on to audience questions soon, but very quickly before we do, I know you've, you're coming to the end of the run here. Yeah. You've got a bit of time off. And then what's after that? And then uh, I start rehearsals in September with Marianne Elliott, who's my sister. And um, we are doing, uh, I'm joking, but literally in rehearsal rooms, people call me Marianne and her Anne-Marie. <laughs> it's the strangest thing. Um, and um, we are doing a Simon Stevens play. She's starting her company and that's on in the autumn at the Wyndhams. And it's a two-hander with Ken Cranham. So it should be like the complete opposite of this play. Delicious. <laughs> and it's a very, very beautiful play. So Lovely. come see it. <laughs> and where you can do theatre above anything else, do you still have that love? Yeah, I made a commitment for a whole year that I would just do three plays. Because I needed to do it very badly. 
because um, it's where, where, where I live and it makes me happiest, um, I think. And uh, yeah, it's just makes most sense. Can you remember the first play you saw? Now this was one. The first play here I saw, I saw Daniel Day-Lewis play Hamlet and I nearly fainted. I was no. so in love with him. No wonder. Yeah. That's not too shabby. That's not too shabby. <laughs> That's an opening foray into yeah. this world. Well, I think reasons of professional propriety stop me from like literally declaring my love to you. But I do uh, just think you're the bee's knees. And thank you for a wonderful, wonderful, entertaining, illuminating, inspiring conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, the wonderful Anne-Marie Duff. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks.